Hi guys, and welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast. We are back here for guest interview number 15 with a brand new guest, which we are both extremely excited to have on. He may be, some may say, the nicest human on earth. I've heard that being said before. Um, <laughs> we're here with what most people will know him as Dr. Mike II. His real name isn't Dr. Mike II, but we can still refer to him as that. Um, how are you guys? Very well, thank you. How are you? Oh. What an intro. I was going to say, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, that's a lot to live up to. Nicest human on, on earth. My friends will hate that when they hear this. They'll be like, oh, so annoying. <laughs> oh. But no. How are you then? I'm fine. There we go. Great. <laughs> yes. Oh. We've got some, um, some really interesting topics to discuss today that is probably going to be quite refreshing from a listener perspective in regards to it's just stuff that we haven't really delved into before but have been meaning to for quite some time. Uh, and Mike kind of presents himself as a pretty ideal person to discuss these things with, um, you know, having done this kind of day-to-day for the majority of his, his kind of working professional career. So um, do you want to start, Mike, by just giving us a little bit of an intro in terms of, um, you know, what you do and, and who you are, so to speak? Sure. So I uh, am a GP, so I'm a full-time NHS GP. I qualified about eight years ago as a GP, so I qualified as a doctor much longer ago than that, trained to be a GP, been working as a GP for about eight years. And in that time, I decided to undergo something of a lifestyle transformation um, went from somebody who was completely uninterested in nutrition, training, anything like that, total couch potato, um, and just decided that I needed to make a change. I'd been overweight and inactive pretty much all my life uh, and decided that that needed to change. And through the process of doing that, realized how little I actually know about health. Like, I, you know, it was mentioned actually in, in your previous podcast with, with Hamid about Doctors are very well trained in in disease, but we're not always so well trained when it comes to health. So I realized how little I knew about that. So I kind of set out on a bit of a journey to to find out more information, both for my own education and to try and help educate other health professionals on this sort of stuff. So I got involved with the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Um, I've also, I've actually, I'm just about to start a job um, as a local GP training program director as well. So trying to get more involved in education and things like that too. Um, unfortunately, I don't actually know very much. And I think that's that's kind of both a blessing and a curse because I think what's really helped me is is realizing how little I know. And that's kind of the angle that I come from really is 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 trying to trying to help us all realize um, as a profession and as a general population how little we know about things and to try and figure out how we listen to the right people when it comes to trying to find information mm-hmm. that's awesome mm. and how did you how did you start your podcast with emma and dan <laughs> well actually um dan sent me a message so i met dan at a martin mcdonald mentorship weekend a few years ago yeah um and we kind of kept in touch after that and and about sometime last year dan messaged me and said look i'm thinking of starting a podcast um but I want it to be with someone else like I don't want to just do it on my own I think you know a duo works really well in a podcast and I was like yeah Dan that's such a good idea I've actually been listening to a podcast 
from Ollie Carson's podcast, who's one of Callum's clients. Um, his podcast with Adam Boyd Brown oh, works so well because it, it's always you've always got a conversation going on. It's not just one person just talking at a microphone. I think that's a really great idea. And Dan was like, uh, "I'm not sure that you're getting the hint." I was like, "Oh, what what hint?" And he was like, "Well, I was suggesting maybe if you wanted to do it." And I just answered him saying, um, "Well, that's entirely ridiculous." <laughs> um, and he was like, uh, and he was, I genuinely thought he was joking. Um, I was like, why, why on earth would you want to do a, a fitness podcast with, with me? Like, I, I don't know anything about fitness. Like, I, you know, I, I can barely make it to the gym three times a week. Um, I've been trying to lose weight for about five years at this point. Um, you know, I, I didn't really get it. Like, what do I possibly have to offer? And we kind of had more of a discussion about this and, and, he sort of very kindly pointed out a few things that I have experienced in my lifestyle transformation that probably not a lot of people have. And it might be really useful to have a podcast that has a personal trainer and nutritionist, but also has somebody who's kind of actively going through a lifestyle transformation, but also who's got some medical knowledge and some health knowledge and stuff like that. So I kind of started to think, oh, maybe this, you know, this, this could be a good idea. So we decided to do it. And then we just, we, we were like, right, we need to think of a name. And we just, we just stalled at this point and we just kept going, right, we'll, we'll think of it. We'll think of it. And then it kept being a thing like we'd message each other and say, Look, let's just book in a time. Let's just book in a time. We're going to record. So we, we had this date to book in our, to record our first episode, just to start speaking on a microphone and see what happened. Let's just go for it. And then about a week before that, um, Emma Story Gordon asked me on to a live uh, Instagram live with her to talk about stuff. Um, and I did that and she was chatting to Dan. And Dan was like, oh, Mike and I are going to do a podcast. And Emma said, oh, do you fancy a, a third member? And we were like, what? we get to do a podcast with Emma. That's amazing. So, yeah, it just all started from there. And then we just we literally jumped on the phone and recorded our first episode um, as just literally a conversation between us. Because we kind of thought, you know, the best thing to get stuff like this started is to just do it. Just mm. give stuff a go and see what happens. And uh it's we've we've recorded an episode every week since then so we're on episode 31 now which seems totally bizarre doing better than us <laughs> every week is impressive is well good. we kind of part of the ground rules that, that dan and i had set was that we we wanted it to be consistent so we we made sure i think we'd recorded maybe five or six episodes before we released the first one because we wanted to have plenty of time to make sure that we would always schedule in time to record um but yeah, we just we just ended up doing it. We we all we all were really interested in keeping it consistent, and so that's probably um, the main thing that we've that we followed up with. Mm. It's, an awesome. it's always been good, but it's always been consistent. Yeah, as I say, for those that haven't listened to Fitness Unfiltered podcast, it's epic. So do so. Thank you very much. It's very good. Um, we really love recording it. Like it's yeah. it's a lot of fun to do, and that's kind of the the main the main thing was just to have fun and for it not to be stressful. And I think that kind of, I think that kind of comes out hopefully. Yeah, it does. And that's what, that's why it's because it, it's so genuine and you, you genuinely have such genuine conversations. Yeah. I, I think we don't know how to do anything else. Unfortunately, like, you know, it just, it feels, I, I, I never understand when people go, Oh yeah, it's so real. And I'm like, well, but what I don't, surely it's like how do you how do you not how you know how do well, you, no, you get, have, i mean you get a lot of podcasts where they just kind of have their script and they kind of yeah. script and then 
and there's no personality to it so that's hard work though like imagine having to plan all that stuff i know we don't have time it's true you're doing a little bit of what you're doing quite a lot actually of uh, of kind of public speaking as as one of your hobbies and and kind of professional roles now so because you just did body power didn't you mike i did yeah yeah with the guys um that's been a really interesting thing because i absolutely hate public speaking i've always had a a really deep-seated terror of it um and it all came about because it was back in 2017 i think at the body power fitness trade show which i just happened to go along to to listen to some talks and uh I was sitting in on a or watching a um, nutrition Q and A like panel thing, um, which had Jamie Alderton, uh, Ben Coomer, Rich Senewold, uh, Emma Story Gordon had to leave halfway through because she'd been double booked at another talk on the other side. So there was this sort of free seat sitting in the middle, um, and also Dan Meek from uh, Biceps and Banter was, uh, was on the panel as well. And, uh, and uh, Shane Nugent too. And they, um, someone put their hand up and asked a question. And the question was, what do you do when your G- when your client has a GP who gives them really bad nutritional advice, but your client believes the GP because they have authority and you don't, how do you approach that? And I sort of cowered a little bit in my seat because I was like, oh great, this is, uh, this is going to be interesting. And uh, Jamie Alderton took the microphone and basically said, I think Mike should come up onto the stage and answer this question because he's probably the best person here to answer it. And I absolutely crapped myself like about every aspect of this. So, so from, from the idea of getting out of my seat without falling down to walking towards the stage without falling down to how do I get, from this bit onto the sort of raised platform without falling down and do I sit down and are they serious in the first place? Am I going to walk up there and then, and they're going to go, Oh, we we didn't really mean for you to come up here. (laughs) You know, all of these things kind of going through my mind. And I literally remember being handed this microphone sitting on this chair and having to rest the microphone against my lip because my hand was shaking so much and I was just like why am I this nervous to answer a question that's basically about me like I can't get the answer wrong there's no right or wrong answer in the first place but it's literally my this is me I know the answer to this question because this is what I do every single day so why is this making me nervous so this kind of set me on a bit of a thing because I kind of, you know, I want to do more stuff with education and writing has always been my thing. I've always loved writing blogs and articles because you can edit it and change it and and have total control over what you're saying. Whereas when you speak, it's a lot, it's a lot scarier. So I kind of thought, you know, I can't be somebody who wants to try and help educate people while also being completely incapable of public speaking. So Mm. um, kind of got onto that a little bit. Jamie actually after that, signed us both up to Toastmasters, which is like a public speaking club where you go and give speeches and get um, get some quite harsh feedback on your uh, speaking style and you know, on, on every aspect of it. They, have, they actually have people that count the number of times that you use filler words. So they call it the R counter. So they actually count how many times you say um in your, in your speech. Um, and they have a grammarian. So they're kind of checking your grammar and they, they're kind of making comments about, you, you know, your stance, what you do with your hands, how you move around the stage. It's really like it's it's tough sometimes, but also really fascinating. And it was a really enjoyable thing to do, actually, and helped a lot. 
far, isn't it? You're going to learn quick. Yeah, exactly. If I did that, it'd be horrific. They'd be like, "Hey, you use the word like far too much. You swear copious amounts, probably more than you should. <laughs> you really shouldn't be doing this, mate." <laughs> but that's it is really interesting because like some of the some of the feedback they give you. I mean, it's all about giving speeches. So there's a difference between giving a speech at a wedding or if you're, you know, if you're trying to, you know, run a kind of um, like a Tony Robbins conference or something like that, like one of those things and you're trying to rouse a crowd and giving a talk or a lecture or something like that. So, you know, some of the stuff, some of the advice isn't always relevant, like, but it's, you know, you can take away from it what you want to take away and it is really fascinating to have to have that kind of light shone on what you're doing and and mm. have it explained in an objective way and to have someone go oh you know well you could have moved around a bit more or you could have stood still a bit more or you you know you talk with your hands too much we don't talk with your hands enough mm. i think it's just like with with something like that where you have this like it's almost like a fear building up of something that's not really not really truly fearable but once you once you expose yourself to it long enough you start to build a tolerance and then just get used to get used to that environment and that fear it's like yeah. when we when we presented last year on our seminars i remember the first seminar we did because i'd done a fair bit of speaking when i was at m10 previously but when luke did his first seminar this year i remember speaking before and he was like yeah i'm really fucking nervous in the taxi on the way i was absolutely when we did it this year after we've done three or four events it was like just rolling off the top of his tongue yeah and it's like what are you nervous about these people have these people have paid money to come to your seminar because they watch your stuff online and they they want to hear more of what you have to say you can't really get it wrong yet at the same time it and i i just and i think a lot of it is to do with like when you when you're doing a talk and I was thinking about this while I was actually on the stage at body power doing this talk, I was looking at a couple of people in the audience and they would, they had no expression on their face at all. And I was like, do you hate this? Do you like it? Am I, am I completely messing this up? Am, am I offending you? Like, you know, yeah. I couldn't tell. And I think that's where it comes from is that, you know, when you have a conversation with people in a group, like you, are, you know, we're, we're chatting now, you're nodding, you're smiling, you're giving me feedback. I know that I'm not completely saying terrible, terrible things. Yeah. Whereas sometimes, you know, you're kind of out there on your own, just doing the speaking. It's very difficult to tell. And I kind of started employing this thing where I thought, well, if they're still there, by their own volition, then that means that it can't be that bad. Mm. You know, like a really positive outlook on life, isn't it? But yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I have like because it's something I've got better at. Because whenever I attend seminars where I'm like learning something, I'll have kind of like really a resting grumpy face, where I kind of like <laughs> my concentration face looks like I'm pissed off. Where I'm just kind of like, and I think if someone was presenting and they looked through the crowd and they saw me, they'd be like, "Oh fuck." <laughs> <laughs> and I think, and I had that when we did our seminar in Birmingham. You kind of look round and you see the odd person. You're like, I don't know if they're enjoying this, but mm-hmm. I'm going to carry on. I'll just look at someone else. It's made me realise when I'm in an audience now, I smile a lot at the speaker. If if, yeah. if I'm in the eye line of the speaker, yeah. I try and smile a lot and nod my head because yeah. that sometimes that's been my saving grace. There was one I, I presented at the Royal College of General Practitioners Lifestyle Conference. And I was so nervous to do that because this is like, you know, that's big time for me. And I was presenting like the story of my transformation. So again, I can't get this wrong. I'm literally just talking about myself for half an hour. Um, And there was a lady there who brought her baby 
Um, and so she was standing at the back, like trying to kind of pacify this baby. And because she was just directly in my line of sight, and she just kept nodding and smiling at me. And it was probably not even that. She was probably just trying to kind of, yeah. she was rocking backwards and forwards with the baby and it looked like nodding, mm. but it, it made me feel so much better. And I just relaxed into it because of that. So, mm. yeah. Amazing. Mm. In terms of the topic that we'll start with, it's actually very relevant that you just mentioned the, um, the question that Jamie kind of got you to present to the group of body power. Cause that was what I was going to come in with at the start. Uh -huh. um, in terms of the first two things that we mentioned were discussing like the hesitancy that we're seeing clients have towards going to their GP or health practitioner for advice as opposed to going to their said personal trainer or said coach for that advice as well. Mm -hmm. When not, when, when necessarily for, for, you know, 90% of the time, if not even more, that said personal trainer or coach has no clinical experience or qualifications to, to actually give that advice in the first place. Yeah. Um, and it is a, it is a little bit now, I, th I think me and Luke are definitely saying it is a little bit get, getting to the point now where it's getting a bit ridiculous that advice mm -hmm. is given with no real grounding for what they're saying. And they don't realize that some of the individuals that are doing this have, extremely large social media followings and they're seen as gurus and experts in these fields so what they're saying is taken as gospel um let's just discuss that and where your head's at with that now and are you noticing that yourself too yeah massively and i think it's it's happening for a number of reasons um reason number one instagram is a lot more accessible than your gp mm. for sure you know I, I see a lot of patients who tell me that they've been trying to get an appointment with me for several weeks um, and that's the nature of, of, of how it is. I also see patients who I might see every week, you know, because some people know better how to, what times to ring up for appointments, things like that. And if you're a young, fit, healthy person, you probably haven't had a huge amount of experience in booking GP appointments. So, you know, sometimes there is actually a, a bit of a strategy to it, which is a shame, but it's difficult to, to, to have a universal appointment system that, that works really well for everybody. One of the main things is, is the want for instant gratification. Um, people don't want to necessarily go and see a GP and take time off work uh, or take time out of their day to go and sit in a waiting room for half an hour and wait to ask a question. Um, so they might find it easier to ask that question of somebody on Instagram because they're going to get an answer. Mm. And the fact that the fact that people are willing to give these answers is sometimes a marker of the fact that they don't know very much about what the answers are. Mm. And to, to use a couple of examples, you know, if somebody asks me a question on Instagram that is a, that is a health related question. So let's say someone says, oh, I've got really bad pain in my knee when I train, what shall I do? Um, you know, somebody who doesn't know anything about knees might say, oh, just do these knee exercises they're really good for knees i did them once and they helped my knee yeah. this person might have any number of knee conditions which could be worsened by that advice that's being given yeah. but that person who doesn't know anything about the knee doesn't know anything about those knee conditions so how are they expected to know that that could potentially be bad advice as far as they're concerned they think they're just helping but this is the problem is is you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions and unfortunately you end up getting people who who are getting bad advice and it's it's this is no this is not meant as any insult to people who are trying to help people 
but it comes back to the whole stay in your lane thing. If you don't have an in-depth knowledge of something, just don't give advice on it because you don't know what, what you don't know. Mm. Um, the other side of things is, is kind of what we spoke to a little bit earlier, what we spoke about a bit earlier in the sense that GPs aren't always hugely well-educated on things like nutrition and particularly not on things like exercise and training. So actually not only that, but they have a 10 minute appointment. Whereas, so it's, you know, the amount of advice that they can give is very, very limited. So then what you're going to get for free on the NHS is not necessarily going to be a hugely helpful situation. If you are somebody who's got a very specific niche or avenue of something that they're trying to do. So for example, in your client base, um, people who are, who are going to want to have questions which are training specific people who are going to want to know how to exercise better without exacerbating an injury or people who are go- going to want to know what kinds of foods to eat to maximize things like muscle building and stuff like that your general GP is not going to know the answers to those questions they might know some a basic outline of, of, of the answers to those questions but it's quite universal um so then you then end up in a situation where they wait ages for an appointment and then they see a gp and the gp doesn't really know the answer so then that reinforces this idea that um that they're going to ask somebody else i've had situations then when people have instagrammed me and asked me oh what do you recommend for x y or z and i've had to say i can't give medical advice on instagram because if i if i see someone as a patient i'm asking them a load of questions and i'm examining them and then i'm making the answer based on all of that information i'm not just making up an answer that's generic to everybody or at least i still (laughs) the the irony is that i still might be giving them exactly the same advice that i would have done if i just said oh probably just do this because like if we go back to the knee pain example chances are somebody with knee pain has probably got a bit of a strain probably you can give them standard knee exercises and it will probably get better or if you don't do anything at all it will get better anyway so in a vast majority of cases there isn't going to be any harm done so then that again reinforces that idea that these are the best people to ask because i asked a doctor and he didn't even help he wouldn't even answer my question and then i asked you know x y and z influencer and they gave me an answer and it worked but actually it didn't work time worked you know we don't know what worked and I think that's that's where it becomes difficult and it becomes a kind of n equals one sort of oh well I tried turmeric and it was great mm. so I yeah think, it's, yeah. it's a tricky one i think it's good that you said like you know when people have a lack of knowledge and and they should stay in their lane i think that's 100 percent. i always find it's it's also where people aren't legally permitted to advise on things like i you know i you know Cal and i must you must get inundated with messages as well Cal, where people are oh i've got this injury and what should i do for this and it's like you know, I know quite a lot about anatomy and exercise mechanics and stuff to the point where I'd probably be able to advise, but I'm not, I don't possess any legal qualifications mm-hmm. or qualifications that permit me the ability to advise them on what they should and shouldn't do. And then you bring into account that like, if I was PTing someone and, and being there in person, I could assess stuff and I'd be in a position to actually know what was going on. Whereas, you know, across Instagram, there's just no point. And, and like, yeah. And I think that it's, sometimes it's sort of, it, it almost is counterproductive because yeah. it's sad that you could probably help these people better yeah. than a lot of the people that are helping them, but then you can't because you're bound by certain rules and regulations. You know, there's arguments on both sides, but it's just, 
And I, and I hate using stay in your lane because I hate the idea of, of like a professional arrogance where, well, I'm a doctor, so you shouldn't be giving advice on this. I should be the only one who's allowed to give advice on it. And then someone asks me and I'm like, oh, I don't know. You know, actually, the, the fact is that, that there are a lot of people who are really qualified to be giving advice, but it's about context. And, you know, I had, I, I had a, a conversation with somebody on Instagram a couple of weeks ago um, someone had asked a question on, they'd said, oh, my blood test result for this. I won't say the details because actually I meant to message this guy and ask him if I could use this as an example on the podcast and I didn't. So out of respect for him, I, I don't want to say huge information about it. But they asked him, what should I do about this blood test? And he said, um, oh, you could try this, this, this and this. And I replied to it because I saw it and said, and also go and see a GP. And uh, he was like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Actually, sorry. <laughs> and and I, I was like, but do you, do you know why you should go and see your GP if you have that blood result? Um, and he said, no, I don't. And so I explained that, you know, that it was it, that blood result will put somebody at, at certain genetic risks and they might actually need genetic testing. They might need medication. They might also need to have their family have genetic testing or other testing as well. Um, but there's no way this guy would have known that. And there's no way that this guy would have known that he was potentially giving bad advice. And he, you know, he was really great about it. And he messaged the guy and, and kind of let him know and all of that kind of stuff as well. But, you know, the other side of that question is why is that person having a blood test and then going on the internet and asking an Instagram um, fitness professional to interpret it for them? Why are they like, who is doing the blood test yeah. and giving them a, a a professional interpretation of what they should be doing about it mm. and if they are they probably will have told that person to see a gp yet that person doesn't want to go and see their gp for whatever reason they want to ask someone on instagram mm. i think that that summarizes one of the points i was going to mention in regards to the difference in the thought process behind something like a coach or an influencer has purely who's purely learned from their own anecdotal experience relative to someone who's firmly educated within like a mm. health, as a health professional within a medical a medical environment that's going to look at this from a slightly more in-depth or a very very much so more in-depth interpretation than, than, than just what's on the surface if that makes sense mm. um, yeah and it's difficult because you can so when it comes to things like you know um performance enhancing drugs and stuff like that and, and blood tests with regards to that the the issue is that most of the people want the interpretation to be based around what they should do with regards to things like dosages and things like that, which is obviously something that in general practitioners don't know about and can't really advise about. Um, but they can advise on the kind of the health implications of having those blood test abnormalities and things. And, and, and I think sometimes it's, it's what kind of advice people want versus what kind of advice people need. Um, and the fact of the matter is in a lot of those situations, they'll be advised by a health professional to do things that they don't want to do or to stop doing things that they do want to do. Um, and that's, I think, probably what makes them more likely to seek out people who are going to give them the kinds of answers that they want to hear. Um, and, and that's, you know, I think people need to kind of have a look and see, you know, they, they need to really think about their health and what they're trying to get out of the process of doing things like blood tests and stuff like that are they actually trying to do they want it do they want to do it because it's actually going to change what they're going to do or do they just want to go oh i'm all right let's crack on yeah, and I, yeah I think that's um 
one of the, like I I was talking to a guy. He was a he was was it body power? Yeah, it was. It was when we came off the Medicheck stand, and I just bumped into someone, and we were talking. And he was like, "Oh, where were you?" And I was like, "I was just at Medicheck stand." And we and we just talked to this really interesting GP about, and we're going to get him on the podcast. And he was like, "Why? Why are you going to get a GP on the podcast?" And I was like, "Now you've got um, two. Yeah, I know. And I said, I was like, because he, you know, he's quite clearly, he was like, mate, GPs are complete idiots. And I was like, what on earth? And I, and I, I said to him, I was like, you, you kidding me? I was like, these are guys that have been through like years of training as a doctor and then a GP. And you're going to say they don't, you know, they're, they're idiots. And he was like, well, yeah, they don't know anything about steroids. I was like, well, that's one thing. And that isn't actually always true. And it's like this weird, and people that gets thrown about so much because there isn't, you know, GPs don't specialise in in a particular area. A lot of people just disregard that, and you must get that all the time. Well, yeah, I mean, actually, it's a bit of a misconception because GPs GPs do specialise in general practice. Like general yeah, practice yeah, yeah. is a specialty, yeah, um, and it involves a training process and and some some pretty tough exams and and all of that kind of stuff as well. So I think a lot of people think that you qualify from medical school, you're automatically a GP. Mm. Um, but that's not the case. In the same way that you train to be a surgeon or you train to be a consultant physician, um, you train to be a GP. The training scheme is shorter mm. um, and it is in the process of getting longer, I believe, at the moment, uh, and quite rightly so. But it is tough. And the thing is, like, it keeps us humble like, you, you, because the fact is you do know a little bit about everything. Um, and there are lots of things that, that, I mean, I, look, I, I, I absolutely hate kind of defending my, my profession and bigging up my intelligence, because to be honest, I, you know, we're people who, who do a job We're people who turn up to work every day, having trained for 11 years to be able to do the job that we do. And we do it to the best of our ability and we go home. Like we're no different to anybody else who goes to work. You know, I don't think that we're superhuman. I don't think that we are particularly special. We're simply people who chose a certain profession and who do it. Um, I love my job. I think it's brilliant. But the fact is, I mean, to, to, to put kind of things into context when it comes to stuff like steroids, I mean, I see in an, in an average day in general practice, I see 35 patients or have, yeah, about 30, between 35 and 40 patient contacts in a day. Yeah. Um, and I've been practicing as a GP for eight years. And I think I sort of said this on a, on a podcast recently. I think I've had less than five people who've come to me to, to talk about steroid use in that entire time. So that kind of puts, puts it into context. That doesn't mean it's not an issue and it doesn't mean that people aren't using steroids. It just means that, that they, they might not be coming to see me in my GP surgery so again I don't want to give you kind of n equals one data about how much of an issue it is in general practice but in context we spend a lot more time dealing with chronic illness um, dealing with uh, you know infections dealing with acute medical emergencies and all of those sorts of things and we spend a very small amount of time dealing with things like steroids so of course we don't know huge amounts about them but it's not just that it's that there isn't actually that much credible information that's available out there when it comes to steroids and steroid use and a lot of it comes from sources like that we were talking about it comes from personal experiences you know there are a lot of ethical implications to things like doing clinical trials when it comes to stuff like steroids so as a result there's very limited evidence 
um, which makes it very difficult to have any advice that becomes more complicated than it's probably better not to do steroids. You know, like that's that's the practical advice that's going to happen. And in the context of 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 a profession that is you know hugely under resourced and um, hugely overutilized uh, in the context of those resources it's very difficult to say that there's there's kind of a holistic service available but that but most areas should have substance use services that where people should be able to get that sort of information it just won't necessarily come from their gp if that makes sense yeah i just think it's it's terrible that that you know where it's it's you know it kind of started with with steroid use but with people kind of disregarding gps but it's now expanding into a lot of other areas that like we spoke about people are not going to gps and going to people on instagram and it's like yeah, the amount it's, the, of- it's kind of the same in everything like i mean someone messaged me recently on instagram and asked me about they said oh if i take ashwagandha will it interact with this medication that they were taking um, and I was like, well, actually, actually, I don't know because I don't have any knowledge about ashwagandha because it's not something that I, I prescribe or kind of have done particular personal research in. So I probably wouldn't be good to advise on that. But perhaps if you speak to a pharmacist who knows about kind of medical drug interactions and stuff like that, they might they might have some knowledge about it. And their answer was, oh, cool. Do you know any pharmacists on Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well... I, I know that there are pharmacists in every single pharmacy that, that, that is open across the country. You can just walk into one and ask, and ask them for advice. But the thing is, that, like, we're so used to getting our information from our phone. We do our banking on our phone. We do our shopping on our phone. So it, it kind of stands to reason that people then want to want yeah. their, their health information on their phones too. And it's, it's just, it's kind of a societal change, I suppose. Mm. Not the best one not the best one but then also people used to get this information from like their grandma and stuff and that doesn't really happen either mm. and like i don't know whether their grandma was qualified either so i think it, it's always been you know it's always been a thing that people have, have got information from unusual places mm. like i mean imagine like following katie price on instagram and taking like fat loss supplements because Katie Price uses them, but that's what people do. Well, they work, don't they? Well, that's what I do with all my clients. I mean, the the question is: is it Katie Price's fault or is it humanity's fault? Yeah, Katie Price's fault. <laughs> Very clear cut <laughs> view there. <laughs> uh, yeah, poor Katie Price. <laughs> I just. I, I just feel like if if you are an idiot, and I'm not saying Katie Price is an idiot, but like, let's say you're you're an idiot who's who's got famous, and some dude from some company comes to you and goes, "Oh, we've got this amazing supplement that's scientifically proven to work that your followers could really benefit from using. It's totally safe. We've got all of these scientific papers to to back it up." Um, and we'll pay you a hundred thousand pounds to do a, an Instagram post about how amazing it is. What have you got to lose? Well, I mean, how's how's that idiot going to not go? All right, yeah. this really clever guy in a suit has just told me that mm. it's scientifically proven, and he really sounded like he knew his stuff. Mm. But I, you know, yeah. I, I, if, you know, 
if I was ever in, in, ever in that position, I'm open for sponsorship. And then I, I did something like that and then had like an eruption of people commenting, being like, this is fucking horseshit and here's why. Like, I think there was one recently where like, I, I'm not a huge fan of the guy, but Lane Norton absolutely destroyed them. Um, right. And, uh, and I was like, you know, if I looked into some of these people I was like okay these guys kind of know what they're talking about and they're all saying this is bullshit probably should stop doing that if I have any morals and I think that's where they choose to overlook some of it yeah I, although I have seen and I can't remember who it was but there was, it was some dude from Geordie Shore I think who had had done a post about about like I can't remember what it was but one of like a detox tea or something like that and yeah. he, like loads of comments about it mm. and he then posted up saying like i've now severed any partnership with them i'm really sorry didn't realize it oh and this is the problem like no so few people are willing to go oh yeah actually i was wrong about that they're just they, they will blindly defend their you know the thing that they've said and that's half the issue is is you know i've i've been really fortunate in my life to make some terrible terrible mistakes like i've i've failed at very important things um, and that's kind of given me, I think, a certain level of humility because it's been forced upon me. So I've had to admit when I've been wrong. Um, and actually, I found that to be quite a powerful thing and quite a, a useful thing because it means that I'm actually more invested in getting stuff right than in just being right all the time, mm. um, which I think is one of, as people, one of our biggest downfalls. Mm. Amen. One of the one of the biggies we wanted to go through was the um, we're going to go the functional medicine question next, so we can just kind of get our creative juices flowing a little bit more before we ask that. Um, but just the the, the two pronged approach of how systemized is the is the kind of NHS's methodology behind patient handling in terms of treating each individual situation as it's individually should be treated because obviously you you're now director of the it's more of a kind of a lifestyle health consultancy i presume where you're taking kind of a a multitude of kind of um things into consideration in terms of patient handling like how much of that is you get a patient in you've got a kind of a system in front of you and you're putting them through processes and how much freedom and kind of say do you have in right, we're going to actually do this situation. In this situation, we're actually going to try this approach as opposed to this is what I've learned. So this is what we're going to have to do. Um, as a GP, you are an autonomous practitioner. So basically you, you can do what you like as long as you can justify it clinically. Um, you're governed by um, several regulatory bodies. So you've got the Care Quality Commission um, and you've also got the General Medical Council. So um, you are answerable to these bodies which heavily regulate your activity. So if, for example, somebody came to see me and I recommended a totally non-evidence-based approach that was potentially harmful um, and it caused that person harm, then I, you know, I would, I would face quite severe consequences. Um, but if I was somebody who, you know, was very experienced in a certain field and was using some perhaps more novel approaches, um, you know, if you can, if you can justify the clinical reasoning behind why you're doing what you're doing, um, then there's no, re you're not forbidden kind of from doing anything like, you know, you, you can prescribe things you are you're bound by it's kind of it's not an absolute binding but you are you know you have a formulary you have guidelines you have 
you have guidance on what is accepted best practice. You've got the nice guidelines and often you've got local guidelines in your area as well as to kind of what drugs have been agreed by the local consultants, et cetera, and in terms of cost effectiveness and in terms of effectiveness. Um, you know, what, what are the first line, second line antibiotics you should be using for certain infections, et cetera. Um, but they are guidelines. So, you, you know, you don't have to go by them. And if there are extenuating circumstances with the patient, for example, and you think that a different approach might be helpful to them, as long as you can clinically and ethically justify that approach, then that's acceptable. Obviously, an issue would come when you can't clinically or ethically justify something um, or it causes somebody harm, etc. Um, you know, it would be the kind of situation where, you know, all of those things would be taken into account should it ever get to a situation where your fitness to practice was being called into question, for example. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the, the majority of time, the, the guidelines are, are pretty excellent and it's, it, you, you would be unlikely to need to go outside of the guidelines. Um, and they're often there for very good reason as well. So, you know, there are lots of, you know, there's lots of drugs that are really excellent and work really well, but that might have a poor safety profile, for example. So although like X painkiller might be the first thing that would get rid of somebody's pain, it might also cause them a stomach problem or whatever. So you've got to kind of, you've got to take all those things into consideration and, you know, invariably in those situations, it is best to go with, what is considered best and accepted practice. Um, but you are also encouraged to take a holistic view of a situation and to treat the patient in the context of their individual psychosocial and other medical circumstances as well. And, uh, and that's, that's the nature of it too. So, so you're telling me Mike, that hasn't come a point yet when you, when you haven't thrown out all drugs in favor of celery juice. Uh, not yet, but I'm, I'm hoping next week I'll find an opportunity to do that. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to just, just going to establish just in case anyone listening doesn't have, um, a sense of humor, um, that that is a joke, Yeah, uh, but it's, yeah, it, it's, it, it's a really scary thing. I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that are being promoted by a lot of people. Um, and there's a varying opinion on, on what, um, on, on what that means and it, it's a really it's there's a lot of kind of contentiousness in you know within medics i mean even within you know like i said i i i am a director of the british society of lifestyle medicine and even you know within that you've got you there are a lot of people who you know there's, there's talks that are being put on by the bslm that have people speaking that i don't agree with you know, there's that, that's kind of the nature of it. There are people who who are saying things that aren't evidence based or that have been misinterpreted. Um, so there's there's contentiousness even within even within a group of people who all are looking for the same sort of thing. Um, and that's a whole podcast on its own, if I'm honest. But yeah, but that's good. Like you know, and I think people it's shocking how much they disregard some of the you know it's getting to the point like we, we were speaking about before we started the, the podcast where you know people aren't going down the drug route for certain things when it's clinically proven to work even though there's some side effects that you have to take into account because there's people touting that oh you can have such you know a certain natural compound that would 
be absolutely fine with no issues when there's no evidence for that <laughs> and, and it's um you know it, it's it's becoming a bit of a problem i think but, it, but it's also i think it's funny among people that take like steroids or something that they're absolutely fine to take steroids even though there's known side effects and genuine things that will you know cause deleterious effects to health but when it comes to other drugs that will also cause maybe there'll be some certain side effects but they won't have them because they've seen some guy on instagram talk about the effects of turmeric yeah yeah exactly and i think i think that's that's where it all gets really difficult because there are a lot of seemingly innocuous uh treatments out there kind of you know health supplements and you know you go to holland and barrett you can like you can have a field day with the kind of stuff that you can get that um and and i you know different people have different approaches when it comes to this but there is a real safety issue so on one hand you've got a lot of people who say well it's not doing them any harm like what's you know what's the problem like so what if they have turmeric it's safe to have turmeric like you know if that if that helps with their inflammation great yeah and that is fine as long as they are not foregoing things that actually have proven much greater benefits like you know like it's like when people are when if somebody says that ter- like it was what i saw curcumin has anti-cancer properties mm. so like let's say you really don't want to get cancer so you take turmeric every day that's fine great however if you have cancer and you're being offered chemotherapy and mainstream medical treatment for it and you say well actually this guy on Instagram who is actually a doctor um, says that turmeric will make my cancer better. Um, and actually that chemotherapy has a lot of really nasty side effects. So I think actually I'm going to, I'm going to take my chances and, and use the turmeric instead because this guy says it works. That's when it becomes really dangerous. And, you know, we've all heard horror stories about people who have, you know, forsaken medical treatment, in order to focus simply on alternative therapies that have no basis in evidence whatsoever and they have ended tragically and that is you know that's what's really sad and I think you know it's one thing to take you know like if we talk about the world of coaching and 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 fitness it's one thing to kind of recommend these optimization things like and and recommend extra supplements on top of training and, and nutrition and all this kind of stuff because you're not necessarily dealing with with vulnerable people although i mean you could still argue that you might be dealing with with vulnerable people people who are absolutely desperate to succeed in in fitness who might be then you know um not going out with their friends and not socializing and not living their lives at the age of you know between the ages of 18 and and 25 because they're so focused on on calories and and um you know, not suffering the effects of blue light and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so there is vulnerability there, but there's a big difference between people who have decided that, for example, they want to, you know, become a professional bodybuilder or something and they want to kind of put everything into it and they want to take absolutely every supplement that they possibly can to increase their chances of, of being more successful by the tiniest percentages and taking somebody who is vulnerable and scared and desperately looking for a solution to a horrible medical condition that they have and going, Oh, buy my weirdo supplement because it will make you better. That horrible medicine from big pharma that they, they want to just sell you because it makes them loads of money. That's bad. That's, that's a very, very, very different situation. And I really struggle with it because I sometimes look at these, these profiles and I feel like 
these people are fully bought into it. I feel like they're not even necessarily people who realize like, I'm like, are they, like, are they genuinely evil, terrible people who are just trying to make money from vulnerable people? I can't believe that that's the case, but maybe it is. Or are they just, are they just as indoctrinated as everybody else? Um, and it becomes a real issue when some of those people are doctors because then they've got they've got the education they've got the authority they've got the respect and people are believing them and doing what they tell them to do and it's dangerous i think i think it's i think a lot of it's just missing like misinformation even on the people the, the, the part of the people pushing the product like we you look at things like curcumin turmeric um you know I was on a course like there was a while for a while I thought curcumin was the one and I was mm-hmm. like oh my god I love curcumin it does all this kind of stuff and, and then I I was told by I heard someone speak about it and then decided to follow up on what they said and look into it for myself and they basically said you know curcumin's touted as this magical magical supplement but do you know how they did the research and I, I was like oh interesting how oh. and they were like well they took a crazy amount and put it directly in cells in a petri dish uh, and then looked at all this crazy stuff and they're like oh my god this this curcumin does like magical things in cells with regards to detoxification inflammation and then people took that out of context were like sweet everyone's a supplement with curcumin but the amount you would need to supplement to replicate what they did in those in those studies is like you'd basically almost need an entire bottle every time you took it. And yeah, and even if you did, it doesn't take into account all of the other environmental factors because your your cells aren't sitting in a Petri dish. They're sitting exactly. in a body and they've got a load of other things going on with them at the same time too. Yeah, so it's when people read, and I, I speak about this a lot, people read an abstract or people read part of a study and they're like, yep, this, they concluded some really interesting stuff there. I'm going to tell everyone about it. And it's like, well, how about you read how they did it first? Because mm. probably you'll find out isn't actually as evidence-based as you think yeah and that's 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 half the issue the other issue also is that people what people read and what you write can often be two quite different things and if you think you know if you like i was saying the example earlier if you write that something has anti-cancer properties you might not be saying that it cures cancer but if you're speaking to people about cancer that you are often speaking to a very very vulnerable very sensitive group of people Mm. who may well interpret things in ways that, that that they extrapolate themselves and that's that's where it becomes dangerous because you know you have to make it so categorically clear that this is not an alternative to to the treatment that you are being offered and it's the same you know we see people talking about supplements and stuff all the time um, and what you should use for anxiety and what you should use for depression and, and you know there's a difference between somebody who who feels a bit nervous in a big crowd and somebody who's thinking of ending their life because they they feel so low and i think that's what people don't really understand the nuances of um that's that's you know that the audience the audience context is absolutely key mm. it's probably a nice segue into the functional medicine yeah like <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned it in terms of um expanding on the kind of the western medicine approach of prescribing and not preventing but let's just discuss that kind of differences between the western medicine approach and what we'd now classify as like a inverted commas functional medicine approach and is there is there a middle ground that we can gain and benefit from both types and schools of thinking 
Um, it's a difficult one. I mean, I, I am, I am not by any means hugely knowledgeable in the realm of functional medicine, but if I was to perhaps read out the uh, Wikipedia definition of functional medicine, um, please do. I shall. It says functional medicine is a form of alternative medicine that encompasses a number of unproven and disproven methods and treatments. Its proponents claim that it's that it focuses on the root causes of diseases based on interactions between the environment and the gastrointestinal, endocrine and immune systems to develop individualized treatment plans. Opponents have described it as pseudoscience, quackery, and at its essence, a rebranding of complementary and alternative medicine. So, you know, again, not to use uh, Wikipedia as a, as a um, reliable source of information, but that is what a lot of people think. And I think the difficulty is is that if functional medicine is, is in no way regulated and what we were talking about earlier with regards to the re regulation of the medical profession um, it, it makes it then very difficult to regard functional medicine as a as a reliable form of information now that's not to say that there aren't any people who practice functional medicine who can be really helpful and who also have an evidence-based approach but just recommend some other stuff as well um it's it's a really challenging situation because often um often i think the issue is is that vulnerability and that sort of level of respect and i think the issue is calling it functional medicine like not everything that we do in life has to be medicine i'm a huge believer in preventative things like i'm a believer in in the power of lifestyle medicine in the power of all of the things that we can do with regards to you know our own well-being that are so important things like sleep stress reduction lifestyle improvement exercise nutrition all of those things are really important they aren't medicine the reason that medicine is medicine is because it's a different field and it's dealing with actual kind of reversal of illness and things like that um and you know there are certain there are certain alternative therapies that are accepted in mainstream medicine as well because they have evidence behind them and i think once things have got evidence behind them then they can be practiced that doesn't mean that everything that doesn't have evidence behind it is entirely useless sometimes things can be beneficial but the problem comes when you're using those things instead of things that do have evidence behind them and i think that's really the key so you know, if a patient comes up to me and says, look, I've got, um, I've got really bad back pain. Um, and I find that, uh, that if I, you know, uh, lie down in a certain position using this pillow, um, my back pain's better. I'm not going to go, Oh, we give me that pillow. There's no, I, I've researched it on the internet. There's no evidence behind that pillow. Um, you must throw it away. I'm going to say, yeah, if that helps your back pain, then yeah, go for it. But also if you need painkillers, you can also have painkillers. Um, you know, the, if, as long as you're doing no harm, then it's fine. But I think that's the key is, is, is harm. And, and sometimes just by giving advice on non-evidence based approaches, people can be doing harm because then people can be using them instead of things that are useful. If you, if you tell somebody that, um, that you know x food is really good for their heart and then they go oh, i can stop taking my blood pressure medication now because i'm eating this instead then that's potentially a problem um i used to actually do some commentary for um spectator health on on kind of health articles and do some kind of myth debunking and um 
it brings us back to the whole kind of idea of evidence and how we use evidence. One of my favorite things that they asked me to comment on was it was an article in the Daily Mail that was basically saying that cherry juice is as effective as blood pressure medication in controlling your blood pressure. Now, that's a pretty bold statement, right? So um, I looked at the paper that it was um, that it was based on. And it was one of the most incredible things. Like you couldn't, you couldn't make it up. It was basically a paper that was based on a study of, I think it was, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like 10 men that all had a blood pressure that was normal. And they gave them Ramapril, a blood pressure medication. They give half of them Ramapril and they give half of them cherry juice. And they measured their blood pressure at one hour later, two hours later, and six hours later. And they measured the effects of, of, the, of the blood pressure. And it was just as, just as the same with cherry juice as it was with Ramapril. Fantastic. Um, the, the study was funded by the Cherry Marketing Association of America. Um, you know, like every single aspect of it was, was flawed. Yet this makes it into a national newspaper headline as cherry juice could be just as effective as your blood pressure medication. Um, and you know, the, the problem with that is that there, there is this kind of, there is this sense where people trust the media a lot to give them kind of information like that because they don't feel like people could be lying. But you know, unless you're, unless you're interpreting the evidence, which, you know, the journalist either wasn't interpreting the evidence, didn't read the evidence or just, you know, chose to ignore it. That's, you know, that's potentially harmful advice in itself. Where Whereas people think it's evidence-based because it's based on a study. Mm. Karen and I are going to have to message all our hypertensive clients and tell them to stop taking cherry juice. <laughs> well, well, you don't have to tell them to stop taking cherry juice. You just have to tell them not to stop taking everything else. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, that was the other. That was the other side of it, of course. Is that yeah, cherry juice does have a fair amount of sugar in it. As he sips his mug, sips his mug of cherry juice. <laughs> yeah, but that's well, not. I've got to keep my blood pressure down, haven't I? wearing a t-shirt that says cherry juice association (laughs) shocking (laughs) it's outrageous the two two biggest questions of today okay Uh dr mike who have been the three most influential people in the development of the person you are today that's a very 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 difficult question to answer um I i was thinking about this this earlier and and I mean, like you know, you automatically use up the first three people by with my mum and my dad and my sister. But um, let's I, say professionals that have influenced your career, then or something. Okay, professionals. But, no, you can. Um, I mean, if you want to put a family member in, by all means. I mean, they they've been the biggest influence, I suppose, on my personality and my you know and my beliefs and all of that kind of stuff and my kind of attempts to try and be a certain way, I suppose, I guess professionally, um, Oh, geez. I mean, I like our senior partner. I, I always feel is like, a. I mean, it's boring cause you don't know any of these people. I should really, I'm going to just pick the three people that you know that have been most influential. <laughs> How's that? Well, do, do the honest three and then three that we know. Well, so I guess like, like from a medical point of view, there, there are a few like really key, um, medical professionals that have been a huge influence on me that you know you, you kind of coming up kind of in the junior doctor ranks I've sort of seen them practice and been like that's that's the kind of doctor that I want to be 
Um, and I, I have some very specific ideas of, of who those people are, but you know, you won't know them, but, um, and they're just people who have treated people with, with kindness and who have been knowledgeable, clinically sound, um, but also who haven't had um, an ego about how they practice medicine. Because I think, I think again, that's one of the most dangerous things in terms of, in terms of especially medicine, because, you know, we, we do make mistakes. We do get things wrong sometimes. And it's very easy to dismiss other ways of thinking. And I've always wanted to be somebody who has not been dismissive of, of how people live or how people think. Um, and that's kind of what's, what's kind of led me to, to try and have a really balanced approach. That's, that's kind of the basis of our podcast and stuff is, is like the acceptance that we're not always getting everything right all the time. So let's look at the balance. Like, you know, if we're talking about celery juice, let's look at the evidence. Let's not just ignore it because it sounds ridiculous. Um, turns out we would have been right to do that but um <laughs> let's actually look at the evidence let's look at the pros and cons let's see if there are any benefits to things like you know herbalife or whatever um and 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 not just kind of jump on these bandwagons of you know oh i'm in the club that thinks this is really rubbish so and they're the cool people so let's ignore it you know it, it is important to kind of you know to recognize that there are different ways of doing things there and and just because we disagree with those ways of doing things or they don't apply to us it doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong and by demonstrating that you can do things in a different way it doesn't mean that we are we don't have to slag other people off by doing it and a perfect example of that is nutrition you know there are some people who want to eat clean and all of that kind of stuff and there are some people like myself who want to want to portray a situation where you can eat ready meals and you can eat ice cream and you can still change your lifestyle um and it doesn't mean that i think it's wrong to eat clean or that i'm advising everybody that they should be eating ice cream to lose weight it just means that i accept there's more than one way to skin a cat and i think that's super important um in terms of stuff like you know putting myself out there from a point of view of stuff like the public speaker i mean like jamie alderton's been a massive influence from from that point of view obviously like he, he made me do it in the first place and kind of helping me to kind of believe that i've that i've you know that i might actually have something useful to say has been really helpful and and you know him emma and dan of course as well doing that too and and, and trusting me enough to have me on their podcast is is has been massive and people like yourselves doing that too um in terms of like my approach to like all of that kind of stuff, self-development, I don't know if you know, um, you do know Emil Hodjevic, um, Project Goliath on Instagram. He's, he's been, he's helped me massively when it's come to, you know, my nutrition and all that kind of stuff. Is this turning into a little bit of like an Oscar speech? Like I'd, yeah, like, all the that's all that I'd like to thank for making me who I am today. That's um, great. But yeah, I mean, like I, I, you know, I've, I've made huge changes in my lifestyle over the past few years and it's been the biggest team effort. It's been every, everyone who's kind of surrounded me, like in my social circle and all of that kind of stuff, like, you know, friends and family have been insanely supportive. Um, and that's where I've been really lucky where other people I think often fall down is they get a lot of resistance from the people around them. Um, and I think, you know, there is that quote environment dictates performance and, and, and your environment is really important and who you who you spend your time with and who you listen to is is super important so i just always try and listen to people who um who encourage like just self-development self-improvement always just trying to get better at stuff i think is is hugely important 
You know, Mariah Carey said it in 1993, you know, this is not new. This is all kind of like, you can do it. I love people who say you can do it and you should try harder. Do you, you, you wear night clothes a lot? Um, I sometimes wear Nike clothes. I wear Nike trainers. Just, just do it. Because I'm kind of, I am, I am a bit stuck in the 90s, if I'm honest. I, did, I think the 90s was excellent. <laughs> oh. So what, I would say, next, what's the next question, Cal, the, the food one? Question. Uh, there's, a two, there's two components to this question. The main component is what have been the high, the three highest rated foods you've ever consumed in your life? Because if anyone follows Mike on Instagram, you'll know that he is a bit of a food connoisseur. And then just explain to us the rating system where it has to be out of seven. Okay, so the, <laughs> the three best foods is really difficult because I've eaten a lot of food, a lot of food in my life. Um, and... I, I really like, like, like the biggest problem I have when it comes to food is that I like all food, not just good food. I like really bad, weird food. Like I really like corn cocktail sausages. How weird is that? And I'm not even a vegetarian, so I have no reason to eat corn cocktail sausages. I just really like them. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's been some, there's been some epic landmark moments when it's come to, um, to food. So I'd say like, what about the, the dairy milk like biscuits that you were trying to get at body power that got stuck in the machine? Did they rank or are they? Oh my God, this was so upsetting. So the Cadbury's snack is a very, very important snack. Like it's been around for a long time and it's sometimes quite difficult to get hold of, but the vending machine at our hotel had a Cadbury snack and I put my money in and I asked for one and the curly thing went round and it just got stuck. And I was absolutely devastated. But what I did, which was really clever, was that I then got something else. I think it was a Kit Kat actually um, that was above it. And so the Kit Kat hit it. Oh, you did get it? Yeah, I got it. Oh, you never let totally oh, There was no way I was, I would still be in Birmingham if I hadn't got it by now. <laughs> like there was no way I was, I was leaving. <laughs> hotel lobby without my Cadbury snack fantastic so and that was that was that was while intoxicated that you came up with that so that's pretty good I don't think I was intoxicated actually Luke I think I was I think I was um I think I was all right actually well despite the best efforts of the muscle mentors um I think it was Jamie Spencer actually. it was Jamie Spencer and his and his tequila shots um which tequila shots are a very strange thing aren't they yeah, I think I think we missed that. Did we? Oh no, I think we did. No, I think on. you were there because yeah. I think you had to put a disclaimer on your Insta stories that this hadn't been instigated by yourselves. Yes, because yeah. you have a reputation to uphold. Yeah, because there was us. There was me, Cal, and Emma just having a diet coke. Yeah, you. I mean, I I just had a tequila shot and a, a I think like one or two gin and tonics. I wasn't I wasn't in trouble. I just um, I I think sometimes I can appear intoxicated because of my strange demeanor <laughs> so that's <laughs> uh, so yeah anyway back to the top three so three best foods i mean like lebanese roast chicken has to be big on the list that's probably like my one of my deathbed meals have you ever tried oven spaghetti no no so oven spaghetti was invented by my mum. i don't actually know if she invented it but um it is it's kind of what we often used to have as kids and oh yes i remember having that now well it it, it came around your house (laughs) i don't know if it's a universal thing because i've never like you know but um it's basically like lasagna but in spaghetti form so you basically make 
you make spaghetti and you put it in the base of a dish and then you make bolognese sauce and put it in one layer and then you get another layer of like loads of spaghetti that you put on top of that and then you put white sauce on top of that and then um Holy shit. and then i think it's just breadcrumbs on the top um and then you bake it in the oven and it is it's and you kind of have like a square of it like you would a lasagna and it yeah. is incredible that sounds um, insane <laughs> it's really really nice um but i was having this also this thought and i hate to go off on a tangent although i actually also quite like to go off on a tangent but <laughs> like when it comes to food we always seem to choose like the the kind of the dirtiest or the most unhealthy option as like the best thing because it kind of feels bad but if you do you reckon and i've asked this question on twitter before and got a really rubbish response so i'm going to ask you if you like took aliens who'd never been to earth before and brought them to earth and gave them cherry tomatoes and also maltesers do you think like not knowing any background behind like what was good for you or bad for you or where you get these different things like cherry tomatoes are like a revelation they're sweet they're colorful they've got an unusual texture that you couldn't make a cherry tomato if you wanted to right like that would be an impossible thing to do I prefer plum tomatoes. Do you? But they're, they're still kind of similar. They're not really comparable to a Maltese, so they don't really work in this comparison. But do you reckon an alien who knew nothing about food would prefer a Maltese or a cherry tomato? I'm actually going to swing it towards Maltese just because it's like the, the flavour combination. Like the, like the sugar and the fat content would probably smoke cherry tomatoes. Cow, we've lost you, mate. I haven't lost them. Uh, was I talking at the same time? I don't know. Oh, I can't hear him now. Yeah. Well, anyway, anyway. I, think it's, I think it's a 50-50. I think some aliens might prefer, and it, I feel like this point is proven, even if you just had one alien who reckons a cherry tomato is better than a Malteser. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think we need to try it. We need to go to a, a, an alien sanctuary or even just a, a island somewhere where they haven't been exposed to civilization and just present them <laughs> yeah i mean i'm up for, i'm up for a science field trip for sure that sounds like a great plan yeah so i think i think genuinely think we've lost cow he's like sitting there can't hear you mate anyway I'll, so i've got the questions here so well that was it oh wait wait so we haven't so no that was we we're going to talk about the rating system, weren't we? we? No, well, we've done spaghetti, oven spaghetti, uh, Lebanese chicken. chicken. Um, oh, I felt like I should maybe say cherry tomatoes, but that's boring, isn't it? I would say, what about... Um, I'm surprised you're not shredded, mate. I'd, if you were living off cherry tomatoes, that's very low gallery. I know. Um, I think I had this really incredible deep-fried banana and nutella sandwich with blue banana ice cream and candy floss one blue, time blue banana ice cream yeah i don't really know why it needed to be blue like there was no real reason for it but it had a it had a certain impact shall we say not too shabby that was that was pretty special um but i'm a i'm a big fan of all food so that's difficult yeah if someone asked me i'd very i'd struggle a lot yeah but um Rating wise, I haven't even included ice cream, although I have partially included ice cream. Yeah. I'll be bad. Um, the rating system, I didn't make this rating system up, but I do quite enjoy using it. Um, and sometimes I think I just enjoy using it because some people get really annoyed by it. But 
basically, if you rate something out of 10, you can very easily give it five. And a five rating is 50%, which means no one listening knows if it's good or bad. Yeah. So it's very easy to sit on the fence with a rating out of 10. And then you go to the next one down, which is five. And then it's just, there isn't really enough variety to kind of show differences between the different numbers. So then you kind of need somewhere between five and 10 and nine is too close to 10. Mm. So seven works well because you all, you you have to commit three is bad. Four is good. And then there's different variations of good and bad. But then four would be slap bang in the middle. Four isn't slap bang in the middle. No, but it would be, if you drew it out, it would be, four you know one two three four and then five no because you have forgotten the most important number of all and that is zero ah well played sir yeah you see so basically that that has been a a a criticism that has been leveled at the seven system before but yeah the issue is four is good because it's seven it's more than halfway and you can't have decimals either so Ah, okay you can't have like three and a half out of seven Mm. are you you back now can you hear me now Yeah. yeah Happened. I don't know what happened though. You just missed the, the final entry, which was. What was it, Mike? Oh, the, the food. It was deep fried banana and Nutella sandwich. Ooh. Sounds pretty With good. blue With... banana ice cream and candy floss. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And then you missed the, the rating system, which oh. out of seven. But they're all sevens, I, I suppose. Well, they might even be 77, which is the highest rating that you can possibly get. To be honest, because it's not my rating system, I don't entirely know all of the nuances and rules. But yes, they are a seven or an eight. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. So well, was, well, let's, uh, let's wrap up. Where can we find you, Mike, in terms of not physically find you, in terms of social media? <laughs> yeah, if anyone still has any interest in anything that I have to say after listening to that rant about the seven rating system and deep fried sandwiches. And cherry tomatoes. It's Dr. Mike the Second on pretty much everything, to be honest. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, and why is it the second? Well, um, this is a long story before <laughs> I will tell you. Um, there is a, a, a singer-songwriter called Narina Palo who is very excellent. She is a seven out of seven singer-songwriter. Um, and I used to always go and watch her play live quite a lot right at the end of medical school. So I had my final exams coming up. And I was chatting to her at one of her gigs and she said to me, oh, look, you're going to be fine in your exams because uh, my friend Mike, who's a doctor, Dr. Mike, um, is in the process of moving to America. So this means that you have to pass your finals so that you can then become Dr. Mike the second. And uh, so she would always refer to me as Dr. Mike the second, you know, in, you know, she'd sign, if she'd signed my album, she would write uh, to Dr. Mike the second and all that kind of stuff. And then it all happened because I was on Twitter and I just had my normal, my full name on Twitter. Um, and I did that incredibly not egotistical thing of Googling myself one time. And it came up with all of these really embarrassing tweets about cake and stuff. And I was like, this is, this is horrific. Like if my patients Google me, it's not that I, you know, I'm not secretly tweeting about cake. I don't mind them knowing, but I would rather that wasn't the first thing that came up on a Google search if mm. someone was mm. to try and Google me. Um, so I thought oh, I need to think of a, I think I need, I need a nickname for Twitter. And I didn't really have any kind of publicly suitable nicknames at the time. So I, the only one I could think of was Dr. Mike the second. And it's really ironic because I get really frustrated by people who insist on having everyone know that they're a doctor. I think that's a really... Un- unpleasant 
quality of trying to kind of go, oh, by the way, I'm a doctor, everyone. And so I don't like it, but I then kind of was left with no choice. It works well. Well, it's, it's, uh, it kind of, it just is like, there's a, there is a very famous Dr. Mike on Twitter, um, who is considerably, um, more successful in every way than I am. So it kind of seems apt. Well, he hasn't been on our podcast yet. So he hasn't been on your podcast. Exactly. So, you know, and we'll keep it that way. That yeah. Way? No podcast for you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, that was incredible. Yeah, that was oh. very good. Well, I enjoyed it. And, uh, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And, um, thanks for letting me, uh, letting me rant. So our pleasure. pleasure. Our pleasure indeed. Right, I'll um I'll pop all of your social media stuff on the bio so everyone can find you on there. And um yeah, thank you again for, for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, people.